Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done well over 600 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site, and there's also a page explaining alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Anoop Kumar. Anoop is a board-certified emergency medical doctor working in an ER in the D.C. area. He also has a master's degree in management with a focus on in health leadership. Anoop, do you work in downtown D.C. or out in the suburbs someplace? In the suburbs in Northern Virginia. So you don't have perhaps so many gunshot wounds or Capitol Police getting clobbered by fire extinguishers by peaceful tourists and stuff like that. Right? Yeah, not as many. Not <laughs> as many. We, we get our occasional share, but not as many. How old are you now? 43. You've been an e- ER doctor for a long time. Yeah, about 15 years or so. Wow. You enjoy it? Yeah. It's a great place to integrate Everything, you know, what's happened in my life and what I talk about. And it's like where the pedal meets the metal. Or, you know, they say about New York City, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. It's kind of like that. If you're talking about the kinds of stuff I'm talking about, and then if you have to integrate that with emergency medicine, I think that's a pretty good arena to do it. Yeah. Kind of like the Battle of Kurukshetra or something. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In a very condensed, intense form. Yeah. Hopefully it's not as intense as it is on all those TV shows with people getting their arms chopped off by helicopter blades and all kinds of terrorists coming in and all that kind of stuff. Well, no, it's it's not that intense, but it can still be it's still intense when you have a when you have a seven day old in distress and a ninety seven year old in distress and the family's very distressed. Some patients are very sick but they don't feel as sick. Some people are the way they're around, you know, so you get that whole mix. So it's own kind of challenge, yeah. but no helicopter blades yet. <laughs> Keeps on your toes. So I understand you, you were born and raised in the U.S. I was, I was born in D.C. and spent, I think a, a couple of years here, not exactly sure, but we moved back to India and I lived there for a few years in Kerala and then we came back. You speak Malayalam? I do. I wouldn't say I speak it well, but I can understand it. I can hold a conversation. Yeah. You've written a couple of books, Michelangelo's Medicine and Is This a Dream? And I'm sure we'll be talking about a lot of the points in those as we go along. You're a columnist for something called Emergency Medicine News. You have developed something called the Three Minds Framework, which we're going to talk about a lot. And you have a website, in addition to your personal website, anupkumar.com, you have a health-related website. I'll be linking to both of those from your page on BatGap. So we'll be talking about what's on your health-related website also. You had this blowout experience when you were maybe in college or medical school and you were just in your room reading. Would that be a good place to start? Sure. That was in my late 20s. In medical school, I was at home for a break and was reading in the bedroom. Yeah, it was kind of like a blood experience. It was as if an explosion went off. And 
the kind of world fell away. And it was something like sitting in the sun is the only way I could describe it, which I never would have said that before this, probably nor after, well, maybe after it, but not before it. Whenever it kind of comes into the experience again, it's hard to describe, but it's something like sitting in the sun. And there was a choice at some point after some kind of unknown time interval, there was a choice as to whether to keep going or not. And at that point, it was as if there was a reminder where a thought was instilled in the mind saying, hey, if this happens, you know, there's there's still work to do and, and it wouldn't be fair, something like that. And uh, that caused a hesitation. And that almost like if you were driving, there were a speed bump that you would slow down. It was like the mind slowed down and then that caused a kind of re-implosion. So like um, those near-death experiencers, you were almost yeah. given a choice and you're thinking you could have actually died if you had chosen to keep going, but you were reminded that you have stuff to do here. Yeah, except I wouldn't say I, I would have died. It's just that I would have, let's say, moved on to the next phase of the journey. The, the body would have died. Right, right. And then I always think that, you know, people would be like, oh, I could see a headline, you know, medical student commits suicide or a medical <laughs> student overdoses on some, who knows what the story would have been, right? A, a healthy 20-something-year-old or whatever. But you weren't on been. anything. You, you were just... Right. Yeah. No. No, I was I was on South Indian vegetarian food at the time at home. So <laughs> so it would have been unusual, but that was the gist of it. Had you had any kind of um, glimpses of such things previously in your life? Yeah, you know, with that, a lot of memories of prior experiences also came back. There had been times, but the mind hadn't been able to hold on to those in a particular way or recognize them still. But then many experiences came back from childhood and other times of different variants of this kind of thing. Do you believe in past lives? I wouldn't say I believe in past life. What I see is simply that the identity takes on different circumstances as it's needed. So for me, it's not a belief. Well, I don't believe in them either, but it's more like a, of course it works that way. <laughs> you know, yeah. you move on from, I mean, I, I kind of see it like, I, I wouldn't say I believe in Rick Archer. Yeah, right? exactly. I'm seeing Rick Archer and interfacing with Rick Archer. That's all there is to it. So yeah. it's kind of like that. I don't believe in past lives. I mean, it's kind I of see like what I see. You, this is my experience. You yeah. believe in air. Yeah. Obviously, we're being a little smug because for some people, it's not a, a foregone assumption or conclusion. But for me, it just makes a lot of sense. And of course, ultimately, we'll get to that probably in the first mind discussion, or maybe it's the third mind. We'll get it straight. Ultimately, there's no past lives, but there is no universe either. But on a Vyavaharika level, a transactional level of life, it's a useful way of understanding things. And there's a fair amount of evidence for it. I interviewed a guy named Jim Tucker, who was Ian Stevenson's successor. And his whole focus has been researching kids who remember past lives. Anyway, the whole reason I asked that was, yeah. I think a lot of time people are predisposed to have this kind of awakening without a whole lot of preparation or practice or anything, because they've built up a momentum for it, a proclivity for it in past lives. The reason I say that I don't believe it, I see it, because I think language is really important. It's not because I'm I'm trying to be tricky with language, but I feel like it makes a difference. And I feel like it's important for people to know that there is something like belief that has a role. Mm -hmm. And there is something like experience, like what we're experiencing. And, and 
and I wasn't mean to be smug when I say I don't believe in Rick Archer, right? I don't believe that I have I don't a believe hand. In him either, like, actually. The experiences <laughs> we have a hand. And so there are different kinds of experience. And based on the kind of experience, the way we experience our lives and how it informs our lives is quite, quite different. So belief is one kind of experience. And uh, let's say perceptual experience is another kind of experience. Knowing is another kind of experience. So I'm just trying to make these a little bit more stark through language. That's good. It's good to be precise and nuanced in our in our use of words. Otherwise, it's a tower of Babel where one person says another, one right. thing and, and another person hears something else and there's actually no communication. And there's a lot of that. There's yeah. a lot of that going on where <laughs> really it's, yeah, I mean, I feel so when people are talking about these things, obviously words can only go so far, but I feel it helps to try to be precise and also explain why I use the words that I do. Yeah, it's good. Aside from you felt like you were sitting in the sun, which doesn't really capture the experience. <laughs> why? Was it warm? Was it bright? What was you this? know, that's the bizarre thing about it is to explain why it, does. it was bright. Uh-huh. It was saffron like, you know, like that. A yellowish like color. Might, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It, what, the color was there. It was, I hesitate to say warm, but I'll say warm, but not in a temperature sense, in a feeling sense. Kind of a blissful sense? Yeah, it, it was blissful in a way, but if you'll forgive me, I, I won't use that word in just trying to be as descriptive as possible. But more than anything else, it, more than the color, more than all this, I can just say that I knew I was in the sun for what it's worth. Whatever that sun is, whatever it means or whatever, it's not because of the color that I'm saying it. It's you felt lit up inside. You could say that maybe. Yeah, we can say that. But that's not why I'm saying it. I'm saying it because it felt like this was the sun. It wasn't just that it was lit up because there are many things that could be lit up, right? Like yeah. fire could be lit up and lightning could be lit up. But well, I'm, I presume you're using the sun metaphorically. That would be true. But the way I see the world is metaphor. As we're experiencing this now, I see this as metaphorical. Okay. So to me, that difference isn't there. But like what we call the physical world, to me, are metaphorical representations. And so that includes what we call the sun. Was it scary at all? No, it was not scary. There was a point at which I knew that things would change forever. And so there was a hesitation there, but it wasn't a fear of the sun or a fear of, you know, whatever this was. Any idea how long it lasted? I would say in kind of linear time, I don't know, because I didn't happen to look at the clock before or after, but it couldn't have been, it could have been anywhere between, I'd say, a couple minutes to a couple hours in linear time. Wow. Um, in experience time, you know, it was a timeless experience, so I can't say. Were you oblivious to any <laughs> external inputs? Yeah. yeah, the body was gone, the environment was gone, everything had kind of deconstructed, and and afterwards, you know, all that was quite apparent, the kind of deconstruction, reconstruction process. And you said you felt like you it, you would change forever. I don't know if you were feeling that while it was happening, but um, when you came out of it, things had indeed changed? Things had indeed changed. The way of perceiving the world had changed. I'd already been predisposed to the interpretation that, Consciousness was fundamental, whatever that means, right? And whatever we're referring to as consciousness. But after that point, it was like no going back. And what that meant was quite apparent. 
had you been reading a lot of Indian philosophy throughout your <laughs> Oh, upbringing? yeah, since yeah. elementary school. All right, so you're yeah. steeped in that stuff. I was steeped in that stuff. I have a good friend with whom I have long, very friendly debates about whether consciousness is fundamental or is a product of the brain and related topics, God and all that kind of stuff. We're trying to boil his objection down to as pithy a paragraph as possible. I don't know if we've quite done it yet. But his main gripe seems to be that there's no way of proving that. And I say, well, yeah, but what about out-of-body experiences and things like that, where obviously at least the mind is independent of the body? He said, well, that's not proven. I don't know if you want to get into this, but if you were talking to my friend, what could you offer merely by way of intellectual argument to substantiate your perspective? Well, the conversation happens on many levels because it depends on what we mean by consciousness, right? We're using an English word for something that has many layers to it. To start off with, in the subtlest sense, in the deepest sense of what that means, he's right. In the deepest sense, it's not something that can be proven because what we're asking for is something that is non-conceptual to be brought into concepts for the first mind. And what we're saying fundamentally is that that first mind is also a differentiated aspect of a non-local kind of consciousness. And by first mind, you mean the more... The localized, individual, kind of concretized mind. Good. So in that sense, it's true. However, what can be helpful is to look at consciousness in progressively subtler senses. As you said, there's good evidence for other lifetimes, right? So if you look at the data... And the data is pretty good. You have kids describing experiences of how they died that can be verified by going back and looking at historical records or going back to communities that they had been living in where they had died. There's so much things. So if you look at the evidence and at least you say, okay, well, this is decent evidence. It's at least possible. And maybe it's even probable by looking at this. Now, what you have to then confront is that there is some aspect of identity that is not dependent on the body whether you call it mind or consciousness, there's something subtle that is not strictly physical that continues from one body to another to another, right? So that is, in a subtle sense, we can say that is our consciousness. That is our mind with our fears, our loves, our proclivities, and so on. And that goes from body to body. So that is evidence. In that case, I would say it's, you know, the sukshma sukshma the right, Right. subtle body. It's not our consciousness because consciousness doesn't go anywhere. I think this is one of the challenges today is that we're defining consciousness very narrowly. Ultimately, consciousness itself is, if we're going by the philosophical tradition, for example, of Advaita, consciousness is not finality, right? Brahman is finality. And it's become kind of watered down to consciousness in English. But Brahman is surely not just consciousness, right? It's it's existence, it's truth, it's what is. There are many aspects to it. So we use consciousness as a kind of surrogate. So when we talk about, let's say X, like we use X in algebra, X moves from lifetime to lifetime. And there's something subtle about it. And certainly there's some awareness in that. So at least there's a component of consciousness we can say there. So at least this can lead us to the idea, to consider the idea, yes, there is something like consciousness or some aspect of consciousness that does move from lifetime to lifetime and is not restricted to the body. Now, what is that? How do I get to know that? Accompanying that inquiry now has to be an exploration. That mind then has to begin to explore what is this consciousness. 
And having recognized what is being referred to as that which transfers from body to body, now the next level of exploration can begin. So if that then is consciousness, now how is that different if that subtlety is a consciousness? How is that different from the world I'm perceiving in? Can those two be integrated? And like this, it progresses. But key to this is understanding that there are different levels and layers of consciousness and in the ultimate sense, you can't jump from level one to level five and say, prove it, because there's no connection between the two. It's all kind of absorbed in one. Well, you know, my friend um, had quite a few years of meditation under his belt and quite a few psychedelic experiences. And he used to share our perspective, but then he kind of got into a skeptical phase. And he he, he said, okay, well, let's say I'm deep in meditation. I, I experience, you know, vastness or unboundedness. Does that really mean that consciousness is unbounded or am I just no. having a subjective experience that feels like yes. that? The latter. How, how can I prove it? Very much true. Just because I am having a vast experience, it does not mean consciousness is fundamental. And one should be skeptical. Yeah. You shouldn't just make the jump from, oh, I feel vast. I feel amazing. I feel expansive. Consciousness is fundamental. No, <laughs> like, you can feel lots of things, but there is much more to that. First of all, if I am feeling vast, then what is the differentiation in quality between the sense of I and the sense of vastness? There is a duality there. So one shouldn't just ignore that duality or spiritualize it and say, oh, everything is consciousness. No, there is that duality there. How does that get reconciled? Well, if I look at another example, if I'm looking at the world, I clearly experience what we call physical things. And yet I seem to experience something within myself that's subtle, maybe thoughts, maybe a subtle sense of joy. There's so many different kinds of sensations. Well, how do I reconcile that physical with this sense of joy? One has to be skeptical. If you are not skeptical, and if you just kind of jump a step or two, there will be a disconnection in experience, and there will be this kind of coming and going. It will not be a homogenous and integrated experience. There will still be the spiritual world, and then my life. There will still be the scientific world, and my life. And the way all of these get integrated is by remaining skeptical until that experience and rationale and everything kind of integrates. Yeah, that's good. And I appreciate how you balked a bit when I, and I said, do you believe in reincarnation? Because belief is just a, a non-scientific word. Einstein believed in his theories of relativity. And he told some reporter that if Arthur Eddington's experiment with the bending of starlight had disproven, what was it, the general theory of relativity. He said, I would have felt sorry for the dear Lord. The theory is correct. So he had a certain degree of certainty. But generally speaking, it's just not a fitting word in the scientific yeah. realm. And I, don't, I really don't think it should be in the spiritual realm either. I think you can take any spiritual concept, you know, whether there's angels, whether there's heaven, anything else, yes. and take it as a hypothesis that you can yes. test rather than something you ought to believe in and you're going Absolutely. to hell if you don't believe it or something. Absolutely. And it, today, it has to be that way. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody has to be a scientist. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is there has to be a place where you say, for me, the buck stops with me. I want to know, and I'm not just going to accept something, uh, whether it's somebody wearing specially colored robes or a turban, or I'm not just going to accept something because it feels really good to me to accept this and it feels better than not accepting this. But I'm going to accept this because it integrates every single experience I have. It integrates my daily life, integrates my sleep, it integrates my dream life, 
It integrates any scientific inquiry that could happen. It integrates philosophical inquiry. It integrates what all the spiritual people are saying. Then if you have consistency across all these fields, then the walls of the mind just drop. And then you just see what's there to see, you know, and you can adopt whatever philosophy you want or whatever to suit the situation. Yeah. And you said, well, we don't all have to be scientists. We don't have to be anything, but I think that we can, I think it can be healthy if you're a spiritual seeker to be scientific about it. And as we've been discussing, to insist upon empirical evidence for the things that you think might be true and to pursue that evidence through your direct experience. Yes. Back to your experience. So you had this big flashy thing. It felt like you're sitting in the sun. After some indeterminate amount of time, you came out of it, looked around the room. What did you feel like when you came out of it? Was it like, oh, my God, what happened? No, oh, my God, what happened wasn't there. That came much later. That kind of reviewing what happened mind had to come in, right? It wasn't there at that time. It was as if, if you take the room that you're in, for anybody listening now, and if you just take the room and you're in and you just look around and you see everything, and just imagine that you could press pause and everything froze. So the motion picture that is kind of a metaphor for life, if it just froze, and let's say it's almost like frozen water or frozen light, all right? Like it's all flowing and then you freeze it, you pause it and it's frozen water or frozen light. And then it just shatters and it all falls down into like innumerable jigsaw pieces. And now somebody takes and picks all these up and reconstructs the set right? Puts all the pieces back in and here, here, except now it's not like you're picking up a piece of the desk or a piece of the floor. You're actually picking up a piece of the light or a piece of the flow that it was, that was actually the substance that was constructing the experience of what we call reality, including the pieces of space. We can think of it as crystallized light. You're putting the pieces of space in because there's no difference between the space and the objects. It's all kind of a crystallization. And then you put it all together And then you look at it, it was kind of like that. You could see that it was all, uh, I don't want to say pieced together, it's not pieced together, but constructed from something subtler and that the things that we see that are independent pieces like a brick or maybe wood paneling or a rug, those themselves down to like the molecular, you know, elementary particle level, like those themselves are representations of something subtler the body too, and the identity that, you know, they had been reading. And all that was part of the same puzzle, we can say. Let me see if I understood that. So what you're saying, basically, the world that you had taken for granted for 20 odd years as being a certain way had been so fundamentally deconstructed and reassembled that your view was now radically fresh and different I'd say it was much, much sharper and clearer. Okay. Just probably because I've been exposed to some of the stuff before and there were hints and, and openings before. So it wasn't, it could have been much more so, I think. As it was, yes, it was radical, but it was, it was just much more crystal clear as to everything that had been described and, and the intimations that had happened. So the doors of perception had been cleansed and. Right. You saw infinity in a wildflower and eternity in an hour. I think that's William Blake. Did that impede to any extent your ability to function because it was so radically different the way a a psychedelic trip would? It did. 
It did. Initially, you know, there was a period where it was just me in the room. And then I went into the bathroom. So I'm not sure how long that period was. So it didn't really impede it because there were no responsibilities I had to fulfill. It was just me. So initially, no. Even for the next maybe year or two, maybe I'm not sure of the timeline, not so much. But when the level of responsibility really increased, which is when I, very soon after that, I got married and I started my training in emergency medicine. So very different life. And we, we moved to Philadelphia at that time. Then it became very difficult because at that point it became very apparent just how much things had changed and how much learning there had to be done, how much adjusting and integrating had to happen. And I was on the crash course in the ER, you know, to integrate it all as fast as possible. (laughs) Yeah. Had you met your wife before this experience happened? We had met. First time we met is when I was one year old and and she was in the womb. Our our mothers were friends Ah. and our mothers met on a walk. They had both come from India. They didn't know each other in India, but they had, I guess, met here in the United States. So that was the first unofficial meeting. And then we had kind of played together as friends and then lost touch for many years and then got back in touch, I think a couple years, maybe three or four years before this. Nice. So it wasn't an arranged marriage. You guys wanted to get married. And did your wife notice a big, or your fiance at that time, notice a big contrast in you? I don't know. I'd have to ask her. Say what happened to you, buddy? No, I think she had been saying that since the beginning. So (laughs) I think it was always kind of a maybe perhaps strange in certain ways. So I'm not sure that that was distinctly noticeable. But once I started the training and everything, then it was. Yeah. This is interesting stuff. And um, it's, I think, something that people can relate to, even if they haven't had anything quite so dramatic, because anybody who's on a spiritual path will have found that they have to do some integrating to acclimate to changed states of consciousness or yeah. perspectives that, that dawn. And it's an ongoing process. You know, it usually happens on and on and on over and over again yeah. that you have to keep. And fortunately, it does happen incrementally in most cases, because right. if it happened all at once, we'd just be sitting in a corner drooling, I think, and not, not be able to do, function at all. Yeah, I, drooling. Yeah, drooling. Drooling uh, and or we would be diagnosed with something and put as an, an inpatient, you know, which is something that we got to touch on at some point. Yes, yeah. we're definitely going to get into that today. Maybe we should define the three minds thing. Is this sort of a repackaging of some kind of Vedic um, knowledge that you picked up, such as the Panchakosha model or mm-hmm. some such thing? Or did you feel like none of those old explanations really worked and you needed to craft something new and maybe more current to our yeah. modern world? It's closer to the second in the sense that I had heard all the stuff from Advaita, um, from very learned people. I'd spent my time around them since I was a child. And I'm very grateful for all of that exposure. It's priceless. It's impossible to overstate the significance of that and how it has helped me assimilate so many things and to be able to communicate in the way that I do. I reached a point that it wasn't enough and that everything is there in some place, but I wanted it all together in one place the whole shebang together in one place. And I realized that probably part of the reason that it wasn't usually said like this is because it's impossible to unpack that in any short period of time, even years. 
if you're going to put it all in one place. But for me, I had to have it in one place. And so this came from essentially my own experience and struggling to try to explain this and struggling to try to talk to different kinds of people, spiritual people, scientific people, philosophers, patients, you know, people who, who have disease, people who are suffering, all kinds of different people who come from different sets of assumptions and will take different assumptions as valid. How do you talk to all of them without having to change the story every time you talk, right? To some extent, you have to do that. But how do you use the same framework and just start at a different point for each person? So what does that framework look like if it has to be all-encompassing? Now, I didn't set out to do this intentionally. It was out of a need because of a frustration within myself of not being able to communicate this consistently because I wanted to communicate consistently over and over and over as I'm doing down on podcasts, right? It's always the three minds framework. And that's helpful because if you say it once or twice, it's not going to sink in. But if you say it a hundred thousand times, some more of it will sink in. If you say it in the same way over and over, and if you can account for any experience through this, right? Without saying, oh, well, that's too spiritual. You know, we got to talk about it differently. Oh, that's science. That's an experiment. Let's no, it has to be integrating everything. So that's where it came from. Having said that, of course, it's going to touch on the exact same points as any philosophy that is subtle enough, right? It's just a matter of how much of it you put together, how you actually talk about it, and how you talk about it in terms of today's society. Yeah, that's a good point about hearing things over and over. I never tire of hearing talks on Vedanta and stuff over and over because I feel that I never get it 100%, and a lot of it goes in one ear and out the other. And you form positive samskaras when you just, or impressions when you just keep hearing the same thing. It just gets more and more in your blood, you know, more and more ingrained. Yeah. And that's the way learning happens in many contexts. So that's a good introduction to the, the three minds model. So now let's get into it, what it actually is. So the three minds framework suggests that. Number one, it comes from the premise that consciousness is primary, and it asks the person to consider this as a hypothesis, that consciousness is primary. And furthermore, it says that the way we experience the world is relative to our sense of identity. And this second part is really the key. The way we experience the world, what we experience as a world, is directly related to how we experience what we are and what the sense of identity is. In today's society, in almost most cultures, you'll be told that you are a body. You will not be told this explicitly, but it'll be subtle through all the ways in which people behave, right? They'll say, like our parents teach us, this is your nose, this is your mouth, these are your hands, this is your neck, this is your chest. And they get very happy when you name these things right? Like, oh, great. You know, your nose, you know, your <laughs> elbow. And, and, you know, so this mind, which is in a, let's say it's in a more potential state, starts to coalesce, starts to thicken. Okay. Nose, mind, this. And then we keep using Anoop or Rick, 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 Rick. You say Rick enough times and you say, okay, Rick. So Rick, nose, Rick, body, Rick, you know, you put all these things together and this is how the identity starts to form. Prior to that, the identity is not localized to a body. That's why very young babies would be very content to crawl off a table and fall to the ground because the identity is not crystallized as the body. I'm not saying that's good. It's good to have both views. So what we experience as our identity and what we experience the world are directly related in this way. 
the extent to which we experience our identity as distinct, meaning as having a distinct boundary around it, meaning the experiences that we can say, this is what I am. This is what I am, whether it's a body or this personality or whatever that this refers to. If we can draw a boundary around it, and if we feel that this is what I am, I'm in the head, I'm in the body, I'm near the body, I am the body, I am the anything like this, this will translate to an experience of the world that also show, shows distinctness. Let me say that a different way. When I sense myself as having a boundary around me and being a distinct thing, I will sense the world as being a world of boundaries with distinct things, right? The only way we differentiate among things is because of boundaries, right? So I'm looking right now, I can see the camera in front of me, right? And the camera has a very distinct boundary that separates what we call camera from what we call space. And because I'm perceiving that boundary, I can say there's a thing there, there's a camera, and there's no thing behind it, there's space. But when you look closely, we will see that that very perception of that boundary around the camera is a superimposition of my own identity. Because if you zoom in on the boundary of that camera, you'll see that that, that nice smooth line is not there. Ultimately, it will be molecules. It's not a smooth line. And if you zoom in on the boundary of the molecule, you'll see it's not there, right? It's atoms or it's energy. And if you zoom in beyond that, you've lost the boundary entirely. So the boundary that we see between any one object and any other object is an interpretation of the human mind. It is a superimposition and construction of the human mind. It's useful. It's practical at the first mind level, but it is not fundamentally true. It is relatively true. And why is it that the mind is interpreting that boundary? Because the mind itself senses itself as being distinct and being a distinct person or distinct thing. And so that distinctness that I feel as me is reflected on whatever it is that is here, which we call the world. And we see a world of multiplicity in things because I've taken myself to be a thing. This is the first mind view. Now, as identity becomes subtler, as this boundary around the sense of me, whether it's a body or a mind or a personality or anything, as this boundary is seen through, as it becomes translucent and transparent, then what is seen is that, oh, even the objects in front of me, like the screen or Rick's body or the camera, that I thought were fundamentally distinct with distinct boundaries, they're actually superimpositions or they're reflections or constructions of something more fundamental. And that thing which is more fundamental is actually what the world is made out of. And as that coagulates and as that polarizes, we get this, the classic subject-object relationship that I am here and I see you, you are there and you see me. And this is how space and time are interpreted in human consciousness. This is a little bit about it. I'll stop here. Referring back to my friend again, one thing that he and I debate is whether these analogies we use from physics and so on really apply to consciousness and subjective experience or whether we're just trying to lend credibility. For instance, some people say, okay, probably the unified field and consciousness are one and the same thing understood through either subjective or an mm -hmm. objective methodology. And he says, well, wait a minute, you're just trying to lend credibility to your 
spiritual explanation by yeah. co-opting physics terms. And sometimes physicists pull their hair out when they hear spiritual teachers doing this. I would tend to agree with your friend, not completely, but I tend to agree with your friend. Like I would not say that this is the unified field, except to kind of give a flavor for what I'm talking about. If physicists are talking about a unified field, if they're talking about something that is integrated from which differentiates the world of plurality and multiplicity, then that is the exact same description that I would give to the second mind. However, I will not say that the unified field and the second mind are the same, primarily because if physicists have defined the unified field, the way they're defining it is not the way that I'm defining the second mind. We still have to do that work of translating the mathematical expressions. They certainly point to each other. There is no doubt that when physicists or if physicists are talking about a unified field like that, that ultimately that is arriving at what we are calling the second mind. And that is why all of physics is, well, not all of physics, but physics is moving towards moving away from the idea of distinct particular things and this kind of ocean-like view or whatever that integrated layer is. So I do think we have to be careful about language, but we can see the parallels and we can see that what they're approaching is similar to what spiritual people are approaching. And the way to integrate that, the only way to ultimately integrate that and a necessary step is to integrate the identity because without integrating the identity, that distinction between particle and wave and why something appears to have a boundary, but then it can also be unbounded. How can these two be the case? That reconciliation cannot happen without reconciling the identity boundary. A similar question I, I often have is you use the example of molecules, atoms, subatomic, and, and as you go more and more microscopic, you find less and less materiality until there is virtually nothing physical. We often parallel that with subtler levels of consciousness where we're less and less tied into the concrete. Things become more abstract, amorphous, astral, celestial, and so on. There too, are we just playing with a metaphor or is there some kind of actual correlation? Because obviously in, in the spiritual sense, we're not getting into the more microscopic realms. We're not starting to see molecules and atoms, but we are becoming more appreciative of the non-concreteness of things ultimately. Yeah, this assumes a fundamental kind of duality. You know, the idea that we are going from the physical level and we're getting smaller and smaller and smaller until there's something not physical there. I think that's just an, an artifact of what we are taught and how we are taught to think. The very idea that there is a physical world and a mental world is at best a hypothesis. Somebody called something physical and now we're all doing it without thinking about it. Somebody called something mental and now we're all doing it without thinking about it. So in the dream, obviously the objects are physical. When we're in the dream, the objects in the dream are absolutely physical. Every scientist in the dream would say it is all physical, although it's not a scientific question. Whether something is physical or not is not a scientific question. It's a philosophical question. But every scientist in the dream would say that it's all physical. And guess what? They're right, right? Within the rules of that world and the definitions of that world, they're right. But when they wake up from the dream, they would say that, yes, what was experienced as physical, absolutely physical, 100% right as physical, is absolutely mental, 100% right as mental. It's simply a different view, a different kind of consciousness, a different stage of consciousness. And so I would 
bring that light to the idea that we're going from the physical world to the mental world. No, the world is the world. It is our ideas that superimpose physicality and mentality on that. And depending on how we access it, people visualize things all the time. That's what this is. It's a visualization. Molecules too are a visualization. So it's not that molecules are physical to, to go beyond the physical, the physics perspective. We can say molecules are physical. Fine. Then we can go down to, if we're going to talk about uh, just energy, we can say energy is physical. We can say space is physical. I don't have a problem with that because I don't believe in the fundamental difference of physical. It's a word that we use that is convenient and comfortable, right? But ultimately, when we look at these, we can see very clearly that anything we consider physical can also be interpreted as mental. Because ultimately, even if we say there's an external independent physical world, until it is constituted in our awareness, there's no such awareness of the world. That's an assumption without any empirical verification. What do you make of the idea, I guess they call it idealism, where people say that the world is just a sort of a fabrication of the mind, but then obviously there's intersubjective agreement. So it must be the fabrication of a larger mind. Otherwise, we'd have as many radically different worlds as there are people. But even though we may perceive them differently, we all roughly see the same stop sign. You know, maybe somebody's colorblind and they don't see it in red and white. We all see roughly the same moon, or some people might think it's green cheese. But there's kind of a a reality that seems to transcend individual subjective perspectives. Yeah, that's why it's absolutely essential to recognize and name the first mind and the second mind. Rather than say the world is a fabrication, I'd say the world is a representation of the second mind. The second mind represents itself and constitutes itself as the world a metaphorical world, which is taken as literal and physical from the first mind perspective. What we call this representation is reality from the first mind perspective. So idealism, there are many different kinds of idealism, and I'm not a philosopher, so I can't speak perfectly about these. But it's generally the idea that the world is mental. Even what we call physicality is mental. So it is consistent with an Advaita view. It's consistent with the three minds framework as well. And the key to understanding that properly is to see that there is a first mind, which is the individual view. And it is not that this first mind of Rick's or Anoop's is creating the world. Rick's and Anoop's mind are themselves differentiated aspects of a broader mind and has a, it's a parcel. It's a parcel of the picture and we interpret it as our senses develop and contact this world. And so there's a second mind view, which is why we're talking, we can understand each other right now. It's not just that you learned English and I learned English, but our very biology has to be similar. Our circumstances have to be similar. We both have to be here. Earth has to be here. (laughs) There's so many preconditions for us having this conversation. And you and I didn't make that happen as individuals. That is this second mind metaphorically representing itself as all of these conditions and us at the first mind level kind of talking as individuals and having a conversation. So let me um, summarize what I think you're saying so far. So first mind is the concrete perspective that most people have. It takes things as being separate, as being physical, as being solid, and so on. The second mind is more universal, more ubiquitous, and being more fundamental 
It's that which gives rise to the world the first mind, or many first minds, perceive. It's more subtle, it's more fundamental, it's more causal. Uh, Am I with you so far? The second mind, rather than saying it's ubiquitous, it is ubiquity. Right. It is what shows up as what we call everywhere. It, it's from all the pervasive. First mind perspective. It's, it's all pervading. Right. right. It is all pervading from the first mind perspective. It's all pervading. From uh-huh. the second mind perspective, it is all there is. Okay, it's not good. all pervading because it's not extended in space until it's interpreted that way by differentiating. And you're saying it's all there is, not just in a transcendental sense, but if you're looking at your camera or the, exactly. the, pot, the potted plant or something, that's actually second mind appearing exactly. as a camera or appearing as a potted plant. 100%. Exactly. Okay. And that is the key change that has to happen where it has to be integrated into the most plain everyday experience. Has to be, meaning it would be, a, it would be good if we could see things from a second mind perspective. Is that what you mean by has to be? That would be nice. That's not what I meant. (laughs) But what I mean is to understand the the three minds framework and understanding the three minds framework, by the way, is this process. The process happens as one tries to assimilate this, this change has to happen because it's, it's only through the change in identity that the framework itself can be fully cognized. And as that happens, the way we see and what we see and how we see also changes. So second mind sounds pretty cool. It sounds like a tough act to follow. So what's third mind? So the third mind is, I always get caught here because (laughs) all the language that we use stops with the second mind. The deep second mind is what we would call as the absolute the deep second mind is what okay. We so there are layers to second mind. There's shallow second mind, yes. mid range second mind, deep second mind. Okay. Yes. And, and this is a good point is that these are not three different, like there are no walls between these three. We're describing ranges of experience. It's, it's like if you stood on the beach and looked out at the sea, you know, you see these subtle hues of blue and green that don't really have names. You can say that's blue when, oh, that's blue too, or that's blue too. At least me, I don't have the vocabulary. I'll say, oh, maybe it's blue-green, maybe it's aquamarine. But there's so many subtle hues that go beyond language. And at some point, that, that's kind of like the second mind range. There, there are these subtle ranges of experience of polarity, of, of what I am, of how I experience, of what the world is. That is all in the second mind range. But that range extends from seeing oneself as an individual and, and seeing through that boundary all the way to simply seeing the world as potential, seeing the potential world. However, what differentiates the second mind from the third mind is that as the second mind, we can still say that there is this, what the second mind is, whether this refers to light, whether this refers to bliss, whether this refers to potential, whether this refers something like this, there is still some experience some unified experience, we can say, that can be referred to through language, even when we come out of that deepest layer of the second mind. But as the third mind, that is no longer true. Because what do you say after bliss? Or what do you say after, you know, all these things? Another distinction I would draw is that with the third mind, light and dark are also completely integrated. So from the first mind perspective, we see light as coming from a light bulb or light is reflected from an object. There's a light source in front of me now. 
and it's coming reflecting from the face and you see it and same thing for me, for you. So that's light from a first mind perspective. Light from the second mind perspective is even that which is unreflected is light. So even the light that is absorbed by the object and even what the object itself is, is a kind of light. It's a different definition of light. And so the world, in a sense, is crystallized light as the second mind. From the third mind perspective, even this light and dark is totally integrated. So what we are is neither light nor darkness. It is what it is. So these are two differences between second and third mind. The understanding of light and the understanding of that which is beyond even this potentiality that is representing itself as the discrete objects. So I understand light as photons, which may behave as waves or particles, depending on whether someone's observing them. But photons are different than the wood of your cabinet shelves there. So I'm a little puzzled when you refer to the world as light, because the cabinet shelves have carbon and various things that aren't photons. Yeah. I want to be very clear that I'm talking about light completely differently when I talk about it as second mind. I'm not trying to equate the light as the second mind with photons. There's no scientific equivalency there. Okay. So you're using light in a different sense. In simply a descriptive sense. I see. And not in a scientific sense. Even in a descriptive sense, in the first mind perspective, light is in some places and not in other places, right? In a dark room, there's no light, for example, in a first mind perspective. From a second mind perspective, a dark room is full of light. So that's a different light. I don't want to give that impression that we're talking about the scientific understanding of light. I'm simply saying the experience of light. But from a third mind perspective, even that light, like the apparent darkness of the room and the fundamental light that is the second mind that is representing itself as darkness is integrated. Okay, here's what I get from that. So your experience when you had that while reading was like you're sitting in the sun or sitting in the sunlight or something. Obviously, you weren't referring to some external source of light. There was some field of light or realm of light or something that you were tuned into. And spiritual traditions, the word light is often used to refer to spiritual experiences or subtle experiences. And, you know, sometimes the word celestial is is used. And it's said that from the perspective of celestial perspective, everything is made of light. It's made of subtle matter, which is self-luminous, I guess. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yes. So that is a range of the second mind where you see the distinctness of objects and and you see that from which that is constituted that's the second mind range so objects may be seen as distinct and yet be constituted from what we might call light which has no distinctness which is all pervading so it's one and appears as many simultaneously yeah objects can be interpreted as distinct can be usefully interpreted as distinct are seen as fundamentally non-distinct but are interpreted as functionally and usefully distinct. Good. And one can live from this perspective. This isn't just an abstract discussion. This can be one's daily living reality. On Earth, we have to. There's no other choice. The very fact that we're on Earth, Earth is a particular way of seeing. It's a particular way of experiencing. So if there is identity associated with this, then it has to be operating in the first to second mind range. Operating in the third mind range the body 
falls off because that's not this range of experience, the kind of earth range of experience. Obviously, most people function exclusively in, in the first mind range. I wouldn't say that's true. I think there are, like I said, there are no walls and that, that boundary of identity is always changing to some extent. It changes, for example, when you dream, right? When you dream, you're a different character. You might be a different age, might even be a different character, maybe an animal. So the boundaries shift there. When we sleep, the boundaries shift. So nobody is living strictly as the first mind. Nobody's living strictly as a second mind. It's not a strict thing to begin with. Things are changing, but the difference is that being aware of that and the degree to which like how much of that range is occupied for how long? That's what's different. Many people, in fact, I would say all people experience this to some extent, but they either don't have the story, the metacognitive story to go with it. So they can't actually talk about it as if it's real. So they have to push it away or it's the society says it's weird or it's strange and it can't be true. So you don't really talk about it or your religion says, how dare you? You can't do that or whatever it may be. So for Many of these reasons, these are the most popular reasons why it's just not out in society, because we don't have stories for it that people consider safe to explore. Right. So I used the word exclusively a minute ago. We shouldn't use words like exclusively or strictly. We should perhaps use words like predominantly and things like that. more helpful. Yeah, where there's, you've always got a few toes in the second mind, even if you're predominantly in the first mind. Yeah. We all have toes everywhere. Right. Big toes. <laughs> and, you know, there have been Gallup polls and things like that about high percentage of the population having had some kind of mystical experience or yeah. impersonal breakthrough or something at po- some point. At some point, for all such people who have had these, and everybody has had them, but again, if you ask people and only a certain number say it, it's because of what we talked about. They don't have a story for it, so they can't even identify it as a mystical experience or their mind doesn't allow them to call it something like that because it's not allowed. A hundred percent of people experience it to different extents, but you've got to have the story to go along with it and the safety, the safe space to explore that. Yeah. Which is why some people end up in the ER, which we're still going to talk about, you know, because they have something like this and they, they're freaked out. And so maybe the majority of people are predominantly in the first mind with a few toes in the second mind and third there are some people who are predominantly in the second mind with enough first mind, unless there's enough diversity in second mind to be able to avoid speeding buses and ride a bicycle and stuff, but still their primary orientation is in this subtler realm. Yes. I would get a little bit more particular and say that it's useful to talk about it this way. And also to see that when we say some people, the meaning of that strictly depends on what we are superimposing on these people. If I see second mind people, it's because the second mind orientation is what's happening. Yeah. You know, if I see first mind people, it's because the first mind subject object configuration has been solidified. So it's not that people are in one configuration or one range or the other. It's just whatever the sense of identity is, is what is reflected. It's an interpretation of what is happening to kind of interpret that this person is that this person is that it's actually only saying what this identity, what we call I, what I is experiencing. So where would you categorize people like mystics, Jesus, Meister Eckhart or whoever? I don't think it's useful to categorize that 
The problem with categorizing that in the typical sense is that the answer would be, well, these people are in the second mind. And that is a confusion. That's going to confuse people because it is not that these people are in the second mind. It is that whatever we see of ourselves is what we see of them. So if I say somebody's in the second mind, then my understanding of second mind is hampered by my own experience. It's more useful to see that there are three eyes. There are three me's, we can say. There are three you's. There are three he's and she's and they's. And all of these exist simultaneously. The first mind, he. The second mind, he. The third mind, he. And depending on where my own eye, where this eye, this first mind eye or second mind eye or third mind eye, wherever that is living, depending on what range it is living, is what it sees as what we call others or what we call the world. And I think that's a much more useful view than saying that this person is here, this person is here, this person is here, because it's not just not useful and causes problems. It causes problems because it's inaccurate, because it fails to see that the world, the universe, which of course includes all people, exists at different levels of reality. And it's not that this person is this or that person is that. It's that they're existing across different layers of reality. And when I, this experience of I, exists and appreciates the different layers of identity, then there's no interpretation of what somebody else is. Well, I agree that I and perhaps no one is qualified to say precisely where somebody is at in terms of level of consciousness or level of evolution or something, but it's tempting to categorize or at least ask for examples because we're, yeah. we're talking about first mind, second mind. And it's like, okay, well, who's an example of somebody who is mainly in the second mind? And then yeah. you naturally think of saints and, and think, well, is that what we're talking about? Um, yeah. Or higher, somebody living in a higher state of consciousness, have they shifted their orientation from first to second mind yeah. um, to a great degree? Yeah, I agree. It's tempting. I'm with you 100%. It's tempting and it can be useful, but I think to the extent that it is useful, it has already been done. Like people would say saints are the second mind. They don't need me to say the saints are the second mind. Everybody already assumes well, just, that. Just for the saying. sake of people understanding our conversation, examples of what you're talking about might be these saints. I have said that sometimes and I would say that sometimes, but since we're going through this with a fine tooth comb, I'm not going to say that. I think what we call a sinner also exists as the second mind. If we're going to draw a contrast from a saint, I would say that my fingernail, which may be broken and bleeding, also exists as the second mind. It just depends on what kind of identity is accessing this reality. And depending on that identity, it sees that. Like you said, I agree 100%. It's useful to some extent to say that this person, this saint is as the second mind or in the second mind range. It's useful, but the usefulness of that is already in society. And so at some point, that very usefulness is a limitation. And I think we have reached there in society where these stories of enlightenment and spirituality and everything have reached this point where their usefulness of seeing somebody else as enlightened or not is now becoming a hindrance. There's enough in many thanks to your podcast, which is doing great work, right? You're telling all of these stories and that helps take us to another level of understanding where it's not that this person is enlightened and this person isn't, but we're just seeing what's happening and how we see depends on how our own identity accesses. Yeah. 
I'm with you most of the way. People probably listening to this will all agree on some level, there's no difference between Hitler and Jesus because they all had, and everyone has this range of their existence from gross to subtle to transcendent or first to second to third mind or whatever model we want to use. But when the rubber meets the road, you know, what, what it really comes down to is what level have you managed to live from? in your day-to-day life and how does that manifest or translate into your behavior and your qualities such as compassion and, and kindness and, and so on. And obviously there's big difference between Jesus and Hitler in that regard. And there are some teachers around who say things like, oh, you're already enlightened. Everybody's already enlightened. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to practice. Just accept that you're already enlightened. You're done. And that's not very useful. And people sit and listen to those kinds of things and walk away scratching their heads and think, well, it's fine for him to say, but it's not my experience. Whereas on the one hand, we can acknowledge that, yes, our makeup, our existence spans the entire range of reality from top to bottom. On the other hand, you know, what spirituality is all about, as I understand it, is having the deeper levels of reality become a living reality, or to put it another way, expanding the range of our capacity to experience and know and function so that it takes in the whole ocean and not just the level of the waves. Yeah. So let me try to explain it better. You make very good points. Uh, one is, so I would never say there's no difference between Hitler and Jesus. What at I'm some saying level there isn't, is that you know? in fact, at some level there isn't, but I just wouldn't say that because it's so prone to misinterpret. And I understand what you're saying. I know you're not saying that either. I'm just Want to fact, clarify Hitler that. had a lot of molecules in his body that had been in Jesus's body. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. So, so at some level, but I just think in general in society, I wouldn't say that. I think it can be too easily misinterpreted. So to account for your perspective and to, to say it in a way that's more helpful, if a person says that Jesus enlightened or Jesus is the second mind or some saint or some person is the second mind or is enlightened, what it means, the way in which it can be true, is that what we are seeing as Jesus from a first mind perspective is not all that Jesus is, right? So Jesus is not a person who has done great things and has taken us to a better level of understanding. Krishna is not a person who has done this or such and such is not a person. The understanding from the three minds perspective has to be that even this thing that we are calling Krishna or this body that we are calling Krishna is not the entirety of what Krishna is. And that recognition can only come without exception. That can only come when that same recognition is there in the perceiving identity. I may believe Krishna is more than just a body. I may believe, I may believe that this great person is, of course, more than a body. I may believe in, in body, mind, spirit, and soul and lifetime. I may believe a lot of things. But none of it comes home to roost until the perceiving identity, the interpreting identity itself has made that change in its own recognition. And only at that point is the statement that Krishna is the second mind true. Until then, that statement is not true. It's an opacification of what is actually happening. And that's what I'm trying to convey by not getting into is a person this or that, because the very understanding of a person is different, right? It's like when I think it was Einstein who asked the question about whether the moon is there when you don't look at it. Yeah, right? Einstein and Rabindranath Tagore got into a big debate about right. this. Is the moon there when you don't look at it? And the interpreted moon, the seen moon, 
what Anup, the first mind, is referring to as the moon, is that there when I don't look at it? No, of course not, because it's my interpretation, right? Somebody else looks at it from over there and sees something else. Or forget the moon, let's make it simple. You know, I have a cup of coffee on my desk. Is that cup of coffee, as I perceive it there, when I'm not looking at it? Of course not, because nobody else has that view. Nobody has that distance. Nobody has the exact same interpretive process. So somebody else has a different view. And you can put a million people around this cup of coffee, and each one will see a different view of this cup of coffee. And our interpretation of that in the first mind world is that there is a cup of coffee there independently of what we see, and it is only that we are seeing different views. And what I'm saying is, no, what we're seeing is many, 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 many different views. We stitch it together cognitively and say there is an independent cup of coffee there, and it exists despite if everything else goes away and all perceiving goes away, it exists independently of that. No, it does not exist as that cup of coffee without perception. However, there is something there. We're not saying that there's an absolute void if we're not looking. That's not where there is something there, but what is there is the second mind. And what is here is the second mind. And it is then interpreted as that first mind perspective from different views. Similarly, when we're talking about a person who we think is great, what we are interpreting and saying that person is great, that greatness is not the person. That greatness is that which is fundamental. And what I'm superimposing as Krishna or as Jesus or as this great person or that great person and saying that that is great becomes, in my view, a confusion. And it becomes a limitation. It was useful up to some extent. And now that has to be gone beyond to see that that which is fundamental is always there. And it is there as as everything and every person, depending on how this I accesses it. Yeah, I think I agree with everything you just said. And regarding the moon, I mean, if cosmic rays zapped the earth and we all went blind, there would still be tides. You could sit at the seashore and feel the water come up against your feet. So there's something out there that's pulling on the water. Even though nobody can perceive it, you can perhaps just perceive the consequences of its existence. And I'm not sure if that gets to your point or not. But then the main point is that, yeah, I I totally agree that it doesn't matter how great Jesus or Krishna or anybody else was doesn't do us any good unless we ourselves rise to that level of experience. And they said that, and that's what they tried to do. They didn't just say, oh, I'm special and, you know, you can't be like me. They said, Jesus said, you know, all the great things I do, you shall do even greater things. All the saints and sages and gurus and everybody else, if they were genuine, their main aim was to enable their students to have their level of experience or even better sitting and staring at them or praising them or singing songs to them or all doesn't really cut it. Yeah. And that very understanding of greatness. When I say this person is great in in this sense, if somebody's saying in the sense of spirituality or second mind, the very sense of that person is great or this person that itself becomes distorted because it is a first mind representation of what we are calling greatness. Right. And that is not, what is actually intended. And and that is that whole process. I want to speak to one more thing that I forgot about before that you said, which is it's how we live it and how it actually influences or changes our lives that matter. So yes, even in this framework, then the point is that the focus is on the sense of identity. And that's where the work is. There is real work. It's not just that everybody is enlightened and it's done. There is that work from the sense of identity. It's not to see whether that person is great or how great they are, whether A is higher than B or C, but rather 
what is it interpreting the greatness of A, B, or C? That's what we call me. Now let me work with this me. I have this clay. I have this model here. Let me start to massage it and work with it and see what happens. Because when that is massaged and worked with, then the way that we perceive others and the world and things also changes. And then all of the questions and doubts start to clarify. And I would zoom out and speculate that that's why we have a universe. Somehow or other, third mind or Brahman or whatever we want to call it, I don't want to anthropomorphize it too much, but wasn't content to just sit there and marinate as the unmanifest. But there's some value added to having a manifest universe and having beings who can be instruments of that and, and through which that can funnel or channel or it becomes more than what you started with. Do yeah, you share that speculation? I think that's one way to look at it. It's, it's kind of a fun way to look at it that can be very useful. Irene sent a question. This is from Prabha Agarwal in India. Mind one and mind two are different to terminologies to denote states of no mind or satori. My understanding of satori, I'm not too familiar with all these words, but my understanding of satori is kind of like a glimpse of a fuller picture of reality. And so um, it can be that satoris are gateways to second mind, if that helps with the question. But a satori itself is tends to be, from my understanding at least, that's like a glimpse or an opening. But as the window remains open and then as the the frame of the window goes away, right? It's the difference between opening a window, closing the window, then you open the window, then you knock down the wall, right? right? So these are just different levels of integration. And th- what we're talking about is the second mind when the wall is knocked down and yet we can still represent and function by recognizing the superimposition of the window and the drapes and the scenery. Yeah. Satori, as I understand it, is Buddhist terminology and Hinduism has its own terminology. And in, in Patanjali, for instance, there are samadhis which are fleeting and temporary, and then there are samadhis states which are integrated and stable, where, as you're saying, you can be uh, functioning in the ER and yet living in that state. You don't have to be sitting with your senses withdrawn. Irene says it's a good thing. Yeah. So let's see, I was getting at one final thing before that question came in. Oh, about third mind. Um, I think we haven't quite covered it enough yet. What I gather you're saying is that it's so fundamental that you really can't say much about it. What I'm simply saying is that there is no experience to be described. There's no diversification, no subject object. Right. And it's not light, right? It's not just Everything is light, all is light, so there's nothing other than light. It's not this. So it's that integration of even what is called light, darkness, light appearing as darkness. It's that. Again, Hindu terminology, but we have Brahman, Atman, and Jiva. And that, that kind of sounds like first, second, and third mind. Or rather, third, second, and first in that order. Yeah, so first mind is, is something like Jiva, but it's more than Jiva in the sense that Jiva is, is the individual self, right? The individuated experience. The first mind is not only the individual self. The first mind is the condition of the universe that is expressly related through through the individual first mind. It is the, the bounded, condition of the universe as the individual perceives it. Is that right? Yes. It is the bounded, multiplicitous nature of the universe. And the first mind perspective draws the explicit and primary, let's say, hypothesis that what we experience as a world is directly related to this sense of identity. 
Now, those concepts are all there in Advaita philosophy too, but this just makes it, just brings it down to nugget form, makes it very explicit. Yeah. The second so you mind, can have two guys sitting on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and one is just in awe with the beauty, and the other is just, you know, because of his subjective misery, is just saying, oh, this is boring and horrible, and I want to go home. Yeah. yeah <laughs> same, exactly. same Grand Canyon. Right. Similar Grand Canyon. Yeah. Right. Good point. The second mind perspective, we can say, is closer to Saguna Brahman. So it is, it is Brahman, which can also be experienced as having qualities. In the deepest nature, it's not with qualities. It's more like Nirguna Brahman, because there's no other. In its flowering, in its expression, it expresses as the world of multiplicity as well. So it's, it's kind of that boundary of Saguna Brahman, Nirguna Brahman, depending on what range of the second mind we're speaking about. And the third mind would be something more like Nirguna Brahman. I wouldn't call it Nirguna Brahman because even the deep second mind, we can say, is qualityless. It is as it is. We can call it, we then kind of reduce it and we call it bliss or we reduce it and we call it this particular thing. But in its prior to expression form, it has no fundamental quality that we can say in language. But that integration of even darkness and light and all of those qualities as the third mind, that is closest to Nirguna Brahman. So the three minds we can say parallel, Jiva, Saguna Brahman, and Nirguna Brahman with some differences. Saguna Brahman is often equated with God. And so we could almost think in terms of there's another three things, Adi Bhuta, the world, Adi Daiva, the celestial or, or divine, Adi Atma, the absolute or ultimate. There's so many models that are similar yes. to one another. Yes. And I sent you that article by Timothy Conway, and the gist of that article about three levels of paradoxically true different levels of non-dual reality, you can say that at one level, as espoused by, let's say, Manduki Upanishad or Ashtavakra Gita or something, that nothing ever happened. Boom. <laughs> There's no universe, never has been. Another level, there is this divine play and everything is perfect and divinely orchestrated and it's all field of intelligence and so on. And then on another level, we have individuals and some of them are starving and some of them are injured and there's all kinds of apparently concrete practical stuff that needs to be dealt with. And the point of Tim's article is that all three of these are true. And if you try to take refuge in any one of them to the exclusion of the others, you have a problem. Yes, I agree with that. Absolutely. And that's where we need to move as a society to that kind of understanding. It almost seems like the last few decades were like the spiritualizing to just get some of these concepts. And now like a lot of people have these concepts and have these experiences. And so we need to take that subtlety to the next level where it's not like I have to be like this and success equals being like this, whatever that is. No, it's like, Hey, I exist in many ways and experience here and whatever I'm experiencing is directly related to what I am and how I am and who I am. That's all there is to it. Maybe not that's all there is to it, but that's, that's a very opening way of exploring much, much more. Personally, I think that's the solution to the world's problems. You know, I think the reason we have so many problems is that most of us are stuck in first mind. We lack recourse to or access to these deeper levels, which Actually, we could think of as an unlimited source of potentiality, which could infuse the first mind world, so to speak, the gross world 
with so much richness. It could. Two things. It can only do that if we really investigate and are skeptical and do the work. It can't do it just by me sitting and meditating. No, I agree. And not integrate that with, I know you mean that, but I think it's really important to say that because we're not saying, oh, come be like the second mind, right? The cult of the second mind. It's wonderful. Meditate and be the second mind. And then the problems will disappear. No, not at all. What we're talking about is appreciating the second mind is a lot of work and it requires integrating our fields of knowledge in society and not, yes, as that happens with one's own identity, then whatever you're connected with, if you're a philosopher or a scientist or a physician or whatever it is, that will need to be integrated as well. It can't be that is my professional life and this is who I am. No, the whole thing will have to be integrated. And only then will we achieve Rick's vision, what he just talked about. And also that process needs to be looked at finely, right? I'm saying the same thing in a different way. All aspects of that have to be looked at. I heard you say in one of your videos something about the need to provide a unifying foundation for all fields of knowledge, without which they're fragmented and scattered and so particularized that those who specialize in them can't be fulfilled, first of all. And maybe I'm saying more now than you actually said, but they don't appreciate, they can act in such a way as to be oblivious to the consequences of what they're doing and the knowledge they're gaining and the technologies that apply that knowledge. And we see abundant examples of that in terms of so many wonderful technologies that have changed the world, but at the same time have polluted it and caused climate change and so many other things. So hopefully, ideally, if all fields of knowledge and human endeavor could be grounded in maybe we would say third mind or the deepest level of reality through the direct experience of those who engage in them, these mixed blessings of technologies would be rendered much more unmixed, much more benign. All fields of knowledge are the result of interpretations of perception and reasoning. Perception comes first, like we see, and then we have experiences in relationship with what we see, smell, hear, taste, touch, either pain or pleasure. It either works or it doesn't work. And from this, we start to form reasoning. If I touch fire, it is hot. I will not touch fire, right? We create a reasoning structure on top of the experience. The experience is just, ouch. Then we create a reasoning structure on top of it. Fire is hot. If I apply hot things to other things, they will change. They will burn. They will melt. So a reasoning structure develops on top of this. This is how all of our fields are created. Medicine, physics, spirituality. The walls between these fields are our own superimpositions from our own reasoning. We say, well, philosophy ends here and science starts here. because that's how we've constructed the field itself. But all of these depend on perception. There's not a single field that doesn't depend on what you see, what you hear, what you taste. Only then can you come up with constructs for the world. And so what we're saying is that perception itself depends on the sense of identity. Perception itself, what we're seeing, how we're seeing depends on the sense of identity. So all fields are dependent on, and if a person has done a psychedelic trip or had what we call mystical experience or any of these, or even had brain surgery and seeing the world differently, 
they can see that as their identity is, so the world corresponds. We may not see the extent to which that's true, right? But for example, in a dream, the identity shifts completely. Guess what? The world shifts completely. So we know there's a correlation between the identity and the world, but we just haven't focused on it enough to see just how much perception would shift and therefore reasoning and rationale would shift if we were to investigate and play with the sense of identity. So that's the sense in which, that's the rigorous sense in which we should be looking at all the different fields. We're not just saying in a blasé, superficial way that, oh, everything is one, everything is related, you know? And so, you know, if we just got it together, we'd all be happy and the world would be blissful. And there's a truth to that, but the truth from, to that, the pathway to that comes from recognizing how and why that is actually true. And not just that, because otherwise you have different groups that believe one thing and believe another. But guess what? Everybody's beliefs, it doesn't matter if you consider yourself intelligent or non-intelligent or spiritual or scientific, or it doesn't matter what, all of your constructs and reasoning about the world derive from your initial perceptions and your experiences as responses to those perceptions. And so if we all looked at perception and its relationship with identity, and if we could see how intimately and deeply and profoundly these two are connected, then it would have implications on the fields in society. And there would be a common fountain of knowledge that differentiates and can integrate all of these fields, hopefully to serve all these layers of identity. I'll give you a concrete example, and hopefully this relates to what you were just saying. Upton Sinclair wrote, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. I just watched the three-part frontline series on climate change and the role of the fossil fuel industry in creating confusion and obfuscation about what their products were doing to the environment. And they had all these video clips of executives expressing their viewpoint with great conviction. And you could just see that their identity was so wrapped up in their product and in the, the money they made from it that I believe they sincerely believed, unless they're just blatant liars, that they actually had convinced themselves of what they were saying and convinced themselves that the potentially catastrophic consequences that scientists were telling them couldn't be true. Is that a concrete example of what you're trying to say? Yeah, I think if the situation around you is very comfortable, then it can become your truth. And then one is not open to different perspectives because the situation is very comfortable and they don't want to change it. And you can see this in medicine. The way we depict the human being, the way we diagnose, the way we treat, all of these things are dependent on a way of seeing. Of course, it's dependent on a way of seeing. It's not a truth. It's a way of seeing. And there are other ways of seeing too. But as long as those of us in healthcare, executives, physicians, and so on, as long as our salaries are dependent on this way of seeing, I don't want to go without a salary for five, six, 10 years. So I'm going to be highly likely to keep seeing this way, even if there are compelling reasons to see otherwise. That's a good segue into your health-related website and all the, the knowledge that's there. We want to talk about mental health and uh, mental illness and the relationship of those things to spirituality. And let's also, in the next half hour, weave in... Uh, something that just came in in and in a question from Pawan Kumar, your cousin, I guess, in 
Chandigarh, India. He's wondering um, what practices or exercises can help us to understand our true identity better or broaden our perspective. And the reason I thought his question might be relevant to the things I just mentioned is that a lot of spiritual people want what spirituality has to offer, and they start doing practices and uh, exercises and, and various things. And a lot of times their lives improve, but sometimes these things destabilize them or get them into strange mental states or sometimes so strange that they end up committing suicide. So let's talk about all those things, mental health, uh, spirituality, whether it reliably enhances mental health or could actually disrupt it. So spirituality can either enhance or worsen mental health, no doubt about it. The way I'm using spirituality, I know many spiritual people will disagree with me because spirituality is only good. But again, this is like what we talked about. Is this person great or the second mind or not? I think we need to go beyond this level now. I think we're ready to go beyond this level of understanding now. At the heart of what we call spirituality is one experience. At the heart of everything we call spiritual, the linchpin, the cornerstone of all that is the sense of identity and the extent to which it is malleable and changes. Everything that has ever been written about spirituality or understood or experienced, the core of that is the sense of identity, what I am, who I am. And as an extension of that, what is possible, what the world is, are there past lives, and on and on, all of this stuff. So guess what? One of the key things that happens in what we call psychosis is a change in identity and not knowing what exactly I am and how I fit in with the world. Coincidence? No. I'm not saying they're the same thing. I know there are people who write about spiritual emergencies and talk about the difference between psychosis and spiritual emergencies. I think we need to look at what is common among these two. And th I'm just giving one example, right? Psychosis is basically a label that talks about not fitting in with reality. Whereas all of spirituality talks exactly about your reality is not this and reality is something else. So let's not be silly. Let's not ignore the obvious thing, the elephant in the room, which is that fundamentally these two are talking about the same thing. The way they develop and the way they're integrated and how they affect our lives and how we function is different. And that's where we make the distinction between the two. But before we make that distinction, Let's talk about what is in common, because that is everything. That is everything. For myself, when I went through this period of change, I could have gone through every experience that would be listed as a disorder. Consciousness is everything is a delusion. Seeing other realms or dimensions or seeing the very thing that's in front of you in a completely different way is hallucination. You could even say believing in past lives is a delusion, depending on how far you want to take it. If you were really adamant about it and enforced your view on everybody else, you know, you could say that is too. Not being able to give attention to what other people want you to attend to because there's a deep integrative process happening is attention deficit. So what I'm saying is all the processes that a person can go through during this experience can also be given a diagnosis depending on the knowledge of society, depending on the support around them, and so on. So for me, I was fortunate to have a couple decades of initiation into what is possible, into different ways of seeing the world and understanding the world. I was incredibly fortunate to have a medical background, so I knew how physicians would think about this. 
I knew exactly how they would see it and interpret it. I was incredibly fortunate to have a Swamiji nearby that I would see once in a while who would see when I was going a little bit off course and would adjust, would make an adjustment, a subtle adjustment. So because of those three, it was still incredibly difficult. Don't get me wrong for me for about the first six months, especially, but then the, about a, over a 10 year period, it was, it was a tremendous adjustment after your and big awakening after that. Yes. Right. Especially once I started training, the, the initial part of training was the most difficult. And then over 10 years or so, it, it kind of slowly, and it's still happening. As you said, it's ongoing. I was very fortunate in those senses, but I know there's so many people who are not. And so they go down the path of being told this is mental illness, you know, something that is suffering. There's no doubt there's suffering, there's difficulty, there's confusion. But does that mean mental illness? In my view, no. It is suffering, it's difficulty, and it's confusion because the societal structures are not in place. The societal knowledge is not there in place to help this person through this transition in their life that's making them question things. And that can happen because of what we call a shift in identity that happens apparently spontaneously. I want to, I want to make sure we say that it's apparent that it happens apparently spontaneously, or it can happen because the mind is powerful. And because at least from the three minds framework, the world is fundamentally non-material and representing itself as such. So that, that power is there in the nature of the world. And so difficult experiences from my past that I haven't been able to deal with can be reconstituted as experiences that I'm having now which might be what we call hallucinations, which might be what we call delusions, which might be what we call personality disorder. These are all frames or ways of seeing certain things. But if we have such a shallow understanding of the mind, which is what is happening today in medicine, maybe in society in general, but society is generally more open-minded, right? People try different things. But within medicine, understanding of mind is virtually non-existent, or it's at least in a very narrow range. And so once you subscribe to the human being as physical model, which is our model of anatomy, then you're forced to physicalize experiences because that's where your credibility is. That's where your salary is, is in physicalizing stuff. And then you have to start calling this illnesses because we don't have the insight to see what is actually happening, nor the skills to actually help these people beyond just prescribing or doing you know, a typical kind of psychotherapy. Which, as I understand it, prescribing drugs is pretty much all that psychiatry does these days. I mean, it's their main thing, right? Prescribing drugs is a big part of it. Yeah. Psychotherapy is also part of it, depending on who we're right. talking about. But again, for all physicians, including psychiatrists, remember, our model of the human being is physical. Just pause for a second and just think about that. The way you are represented, the fundamental map of being human in medicine, in allopathic medicine, is that you are made up of protons and neutrons. Where is the mind in that? Where's joy in that? Except to say protons and neutrons form molecules and that molecule gives the experience of joy. The fundamental experience of joy as joy isn't there. It doesn't fit in our paradigm. The experience of identity as fundamental, who I am, my dreams, my hopes as fundamental doesn't fit in my paradigm. It has to be a consequence of molecules and protons. So guess what? When I'm suffering, the suffering has to be about molecules and protons. Now I can go outside of that with psychotherapy and say, well, let's look at your experience. Let's dive into that. And that's great. But that is not where our credibility is as physicians. We're biomedically trained. And so we have to physicalize to kind of retain that credibility. So that's what's happening. 
One of the key things that I think you just said in the last couple of minutes was that spirituality either results in or necessitates a restructuring of our inner workings, a restructuring of our makeup. And psychosis is also a restructuring. And in, in, in both cases, here's an example. Back in the 70s, mostly, I used to go on these long meditation retreats, sometimes six weeks, sometimes six months. And we'd build up more and more and more. And then in the middle, you'd be doing a lot of meditation all day long. And during that phase, it was like too much to go into town to buy toothpaste. I mean, it was overwhelming, you know, to just have any kind of ordinary thing. And then you'd take on the long course, it would take at least a month, maybe more to taper off gradually and get more and more stabilized and integrated in activity. But you'd feel on those courses like jello that hadn't molded yet. You know, it was, it was in its liquid state. And depending upon how you tapered off, you could mold in different ways. And there was one course where I had to come down much too quickly. And it took me many, many months to get stabilized. And during those months, I was kind of erratic and impulsive and more obsessive than I normally am. So in any case, the point is that Spirituality is a restructuring of our whole makeup, and it necessitates kind of loosening things up before screwing them back together again. And like you were saying, you sometimes need guidance or else they get screwed back together wrong or they just stay loose and you end up in some kind of dysfunctional state. And we need guidance because we're in a society. And it also depends on the intensity of the experience. If, If it's not so intense, then, you know, some guidance is needed. I think of it no differently than, you know, for me to learn emergency medicine, I was basically in an apprenticeship, right? That's what residency is. I was around very experienced emergency physicians. So like I knew all the stuff, I knew what to do, but there's so many things you can't communicate in words and, and somebody will say, Hey, wait, look at that. What about that? You know, see that a little differently. Don't do that. Trust me. Don't do that. Check this out. <laughs> right. And you yeah. say, yes, you've done this for 20, 30 years and uh, I've done it for two years. So yes, let me see what this person's talking about. And it's no different here. If we're talking about something subtle and I'm meditating and it feels good and then I come back and I do my work in the world and go back and forth and that's fine. It doesn't need any kind of guidance. But depending on the intensity and the rapidity of integration, given the fact, this is key, given the fact that we are in a society that expects certain things, that assumes certain things, that see has a particular view of what is right and wrong, et cetera, there has to be some kind of pointer to bring us into some kind of equilibrium with that. Otherwise, you're going to be seen as not working or ill or bad or something like that. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's no board of standards or anything for spiritual teachers. It would be difficult to form one. It's more like herding cats. Everybody is so different. It's a wild, wild west kind of situation. There's been some real bad actors, you know, who have been very irresponsible and abusive and harmful to their students. So it's a tricky situation. This is, there's something I helped to found, which I'll tell you more about later, called the Association for Spiritual Integrity, which attempts to establish a standard that spiritual teachers could be expected to meet. And um, so that students aren't uh, bamboozled, you know, and, and into thinking that some misbehaving teacher must be expressing crazy wisdom and they should just ride along with him. You said you had this Swamiji in the vicinity that you could turn to, and apparently he was a good one and, and mm-hmm. could be trusted and knew what he was talking about. But unfortunately, not all teachers are like that. It's just something that yeah. I think is a need in our current time to separate the, the wheat from the chaff. Mm-hmm. 
This is another reason for what I said before about not saying that this person is enlightened or that right, person is, right. is such. We all exist in these three ranges, we can say. We all do. Every single person, the greatest person and the so-called worst person, all exist across these three ranges. No matter how much we hear the word absolute, we hear the word relative, these are all for the first mind in this kind of scale of graduated understanding, these kinds of things are helpful. But to assume that one person is fundamentally greater than the other, no, maybe expressly greater, maybe most of the times greater even, maybe greater at something, but just fundamentally and absolutely greater, no. It's just a contradiction of the universe. The universe is the universe. It's not something else. Now, relative to what I expect, relative to a society, of course, yes. But I think we have to get to that place where we're starting to see that this all exists at three levels. Regarding spiritual teachers, I don't see myself as a spiritual teacher, first of all. I'm describing my experience and I'm communicating something that I think is useful. So at least for myself, I don't see myself as a spiritual teacher. I'm communicating something. I'm trying to communicate something. I don't know that you can set standards. I think what is better is for each person to set their own standard in terms of as a learner. So if I'm learning, every person should retain their discernment. And somebody who's learning shouldn't hand over all discernment. Oh, I'm hopelessly lost. I don't know anything. I could never understand anything. No, each of us is fully capable. Of course, sometimes we're overwhelmed. Of course, there's a great deal of suffering sometimes, but we're also aware. We are that same thing that we're looking for in the other person. So retaining that sense is also helpful. And in terms of a general broad message that you could broadcast, I think that's the best we could do. Yeah. Well, discernment is the most important thing. Ultimately, the, the student needs to develop that. And, you know, then they will not let themselves be taken advantage of by misbehaving teacher. But unfortunately, we're not all born with perfect discernment. And it's something that does need to be developed. A bunch of questions have come in. I want to make sure we get to them. This is another one from Anand Kumar. In All the Kumars in, are writing, huh? You got a lot of cousins. I tell my patients, Kumar is like Smith, Smith right? Yeah. <laughs> As a visionary of holistic healing, what are your recommendations to seekers who travel to gatherings of gurus and their successors or to those who undertake pilgrimages to temples in the Himalayas, etc.? If it calls you, enjoy it. Keep your discernment, enjoy it. Certainly these places are different. Rather than seeing these as different places, you can just see these as different ranges of mind. The Himalayas are, are a kind of mental space. And if you go there, your mental space will be different than if you're in New York City. So go there and, and discern, enjoy, and reconcile it within yourself. Why not? Yeah. Talk about reincarnation. Here's one from Vincent Van Gogh. Actually, it's Vincent Go. I'm just kidding. Hold on to that ear, Vincent. How do the various religions integrate under the theory of one consciousness? Why are there so many religions then? When three people look at a coffee cup from different angles, why do they see three different kinds of coffee cups? They imagine that there is one. Why do they see three different ones? Because their interpretations of the second mind are different. We can think of all religions. Well, I don't know enough about religion to say this, but generally speaking, loosely speaking, we can think of all religions as describing paths from the first mind to the second mind. So if that is the case, of course, the terminology will be different. What are the fundamental assumptions? Sometimes it can help to say, that is really great. I want to be great. I want to go on this path. That can be useful. 
it's also limiting and it's also useful, right? Depending on the stage. So everybody sees that a little differently. Some person will dress up and say, look, I am the way. Some person will say, it's not just I am the way, everyone is the way. Some people, like you said, enlightenment is everybody's enlightened. There are so many different ways of seeing it. The point is that all of them are for a particular kind of mind. And all of them are not absolutely good or even very good or even good. They can be harmful in some cases because they work for a particular kind of mind in a particular stage. And that's all that they work for. And so somebody else might say, oh, that's that's rubbish. Okay, good. That person is on a different path. Eventually, they might see that what was called rubbish was actually a way of trying to phrase something that didn't work with their own mindset. So in that sense, these are different paths to what is here. And also a different kind of mind can predominate at certain times in certain places. So there might be a culture that's predominant in a certain age in a certain place and a religion forms there that caters to that mindset, the mindset of that culture. And then it's problematic when you try to transplant that religion to a completely different culture and mindset and geographical and climatic situation it's very often not a good fit putting a square peg in a round hole, so to speak. Yeah. And if you read religious texts, people who are insightful and have practiced and have investigated their own identity will see that, okay, I see the truth in here. I see what's true in here. And they would probably also say, ooh, I would never say that. That particular phrase, I would never say that because it was within a particular culture, a particular time, and all of that changes. But anything that has to do with identity and what a person is, is always going to be true because ultimately that, that goes beyond the culture at the deeper levels. You take what you need and you leave the rest. Here's a question from my friend Landon Hall in Cambria, California. You stress the importance of integrating second mind into living everyday life in work and relationships and community. Could you offer some specific examples of what that integration would look like or looks like for you in your work as an emergency room doctor in your family life with your friends and your community? And how does one cultivate that integration? So the biggest thing is the sense of ease. The biggest sense that what I'm doing at work in emergency medicine, though when practicing medicine, I practice the principles that I learned in medicine, right? Allopathic principles of anatomy and physiology and diagnosis and treatment. That can be done And that does not fundamentally contradict a second mind perspective. Expressly, it does. And at the express level, there's work to be done in integrating, which is why I'm doing this interview, for example. But at a fundamental level of experiencing, there does not have to be a contradiction between that and being a husband and being a son and being a father and being silly and being serious, right? And being blissful and sitting there. All the contradictions are apparent and at the expressed level. So in experiencing this, the biggest thing is a sense of relaxation and ease that comes in crossing these apparent boundaries of life, the personal life and the personal life, right? Or scientific life and the spiritual life or the practical life and some other life. So that is the biggest thing is that sense of ease. In terms of how to do it, we can say that there are a few ways. In some sense, some things just happen at certain times. That really isn't helpful. So let's set that one aside. One is by inquiring into the sense of identity. And what I mean by that is literally just feeling like when I say I, I, or me, me, 
what is the sense of that? What does that feel like to say me? What does this word me correspond to? If I had to draw an arrow from the word me to what that actually is, what it is representative of, what would that be pointing to and getting a sense for this, what this is? Because this will be the boundary of the first mind. This will be the boundary of identity. It'll take some time for somebody who's not used to doing this because we're so used to boundaries being physical things out there and not thinking of boundaries as superimpositions. And what this will feel like is, is something blurry or something, you know, not so definite. But yeah, there is this kind of sense of what me is. Spend a lot of time with that. Spend a lot of time with what me is. And that sense of boundary will slowly start to change and shift. And your experience of the world will also start to change and shift. Important to know that this isn't magic or this isn't like, oh, wow, it's so easy. There's a reason that this doesn't happen all the time. Because all the beliefs are caked into that boundary. All the experiences, all the traumatic experiences are caked into that boundary from this lifetime and any lifetime. So when we're talking about this boundary of identity, it is tremendously significant. It's not just a metaphysical, cool, philosophical, abstract term. It's incredibly real because it, it contains all of these beliefs, experiences, fears, possible, etc. And so as that changes, you'll see emotions will start to come up. Memories will start to come up. You'll have to face what belief that you've been carrying for so long all of this, like about work, about home, all the boundaries between personal life, professional life, all of that will come up. Every single thing that is kind of an assumption in society, an undeclared implicit assumption will have to come up and be integrated. And that is what this process is of seeing through this boundary. So that's another one. A third way, and the most perhaps concrete way that like anybody can jump in is through what I call the four engines. And this we also use on health revolution. These are the four engines of health and healing. And it just so happens that these four engines also facilitate this process. And that's nutrition, movement, rest, nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. Nutrition is food. The first two are incredibly powerful that I talked about. If we want to facilitate it further and help the integration process further, nutrition, plant-based nutrition specifically will facilitate that as opposed to eating animal and dairy. Those two will require more integration because we're also taking in the animal mind. So it's just a lot more work now. You need a lot more CPU power to integrate that too, whereas that could be going towards other kinds of integration. And all of these occur across the body. So it's not just the physical structure. It's nutrition of the body in terms of plant-based nutrition is nutrition of the mind. This is nutrition of the mind. Hearing different ideas, considering different hypotheses is nutrition of the mind. Turning off the same old thing, the news or something else that's been saying the same thing for 20, 30 years in different ways, right? What are we actually learning from that? Maybe check the news once a week, read the headlines or something, but just watch what information you're taking in and what you're not. Now, I'm not saying shut out the world. I'm not saying go into a cocoon. I'm not saying any of these things. I'm just saying be aware that everything is everything and everything influences everything. So what are we being influenced by? Make sure that we're taking in the proper nutrition. The other thing is movement. Take your body through your full range of motion. Move the joints that you'd never move, like the tip of this finger. Just do that, that tip of that finger. Because 
if the body is the representation of the deep mind, which is what the three minds framework suggests, then range of motion of the body is opening, is moving something in the mind. And if there's a part of the body that we're not moving, then there's a part of the deep mind that is not being moved and that is stagnating. And that is going to lead towards concretizing and less towards seeing through boundaries. See, you, so even do you something practice yoga simple. asanas yourself or recommend them? I do like a version of Surya Namaskar. I don't do the original. I've kind of modified it a little bit and I do not much and maybe do it four or five days a week. And I do it for maybe five, 10 minutes, but just to keep the body limber, I do that. And then I try to play some, you know, tennis and things like that. But here, what I'm talking about is not just exercise, but every single joint, make sure you're moving it because every movement is significant. It's representative. So I move all my toes like this. I open and close my feet like this. And when you get into the deeper structures of anatomy and energetic anatomy, all of those have effects on the flow of energy in those areas. So doing all of that, this is like a a cheat sheet. It's like cheating and opening up the mind in a cheating way because nobody believes that the body is the mind. So you're kind of just taking advantage of very easy things, but nobody does them because they don't believe it. So that's movement of the body. Then there's, of course, movement of your creativity. Your creativity has to be expressed. It doesn't matter if people think it's crazy or people think it's wild. Write it down. Talk to people about it. Right? The way Health Revolution started is I was telling people, I have a, I have a dream of starting a school and it'll be for health. And I just started telling people, just express it in some way. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's art. Maybe it's pottery. Maybe it's just making paper airplanes, right? So whatever your creativity is, or maybe you're thinking, I see the world differently. I see my own profession differently. Speak about it. Talk about it. That's moving your creativity, moving your emotions. The society tells us, don't cry, shut it down, put the smile on your face, especially if you're spiritual, you better put a smile on your face. Otherwise, that means you're not enlightened. So, you know, all of these ideas The emotions have to be moved. They stagnate and they, again, represent as the physical structure. And there's no way to ultimately see through this boundary in a healthy way, rather than in a very staccato, intense, disruptive way, without integrating all of these things. So that's another one. Connection, three kinds of connection. One is, of course, connecting with oneself. This audience already knows about that, so I'm not going to talk much about that, whether it's meditation or your own practice. The other two is connecting with others. So what we're experiencing, talking about it with others, because if the world is us and if the world is this representation, then that contact has to be there. That integration has to be there. The wall has to come down. So it has to be also in relationship with us. And I can guarantee you, no matter how wild your thinking is, there are other people thinking the same thing in some way. So find those people, get that relationship moving with others. And then the third is connecting with the planet. So that is feet in the soil, feet in the ocean, sun on the skin, fresh air in the lungs, direct contact with the planet is essential and one of the most overlooked things. I'll just talk about the last one quickly, which is rest, right? Rest, not only sleep, but also knowing how to just set the mind aside and just be like, yeah, just going to be here for a while. It doesn't have to be meditation. You can just be like, yeah, I'm going to sit here. It's quite nice to sit here. So nutrition, movement, connection, rest. What we talk about, Rick, what many of the monastic traditions did is exactly this, but they won't talk about it in such ways, right? Why do you remove yourself to the Himalayas? Because 
There are too many stimuli making us do too many things, right? That's where you can have rest. Why are they barefoot walking around? Because there's electron transfer between the body and the ground. There's connection. They have incredibly fresh air in the lungs. Why are they in a loincloth? Because there's sun on the skin and there's air breathing through their skin. It's not strangeness. It's because they intuitively knew what these four engines were, right? Why are they eating primarily plant-based food? Why are they primarily not eating so much to begin with? Because they know that food is modified as thought and depending on the kind of food, certain kinds of thinking are associated with that. What we consider to be a monk, we bring that into daily life and that's what the four engines are, but you've got to modify it for your own personal use as well. So these are the three ways, sometimes apparently spontaneously by feeling into the sense of identity and all the things that come with it. And then most explicitly and concretely through the four engines of health and healing, which is for this, but it is also for health and healing of the body and mind. Great. And that's all on on your website, which I will link to. You have some testimonials there of people who got over autoimmune disease or you know, some different yeah, things. So that's on diabetes or whatever. Actually, it, just right now, it's, it's May 7th, 1202. We just launched on healthrevolution.org. Um, I have to see if everything I did actually happened and if the podcasts are up. But if you go to our YouTube channel, we are launching the Healing is Possible podcast. So Health Revolution is the application of the Three Minds framework in healthcare. And the idea is that what we call the body is the representation of the mind. And so therefore, that is why there are people healing from all kinds of things that we say it is not possible to heal from in allopathy. Because we have physicalized the human being into a physical structure and we say the body is it, or we don't understand what's happening in rheumatoid arthritis, right? We don't understand what's happening in cancer. We don't understand that because we've completely physicalized it, or we understand it to some extent, but not completely. But when you look at the human being, their full anatomy, including the mind and subtler structures, then you have many more levers to work with into changing that body. And that's what these interviews that show people who have healed that are all over the place, but we don't write up the case reports so we think that it's impossible to heal from these things. That's what health revolution is going to change. Make sure I have the latest information about that so I can put it on your okay. page on BatGap. A few more questions if you have the time. You got a little sure. bit more time? Yeah. Um, this one is from Ravi Dadlani. I think we have two questions from him. I think he's a neurologist or a neurosurgeon or something. He's in the United Arab Emirates. Why do so many people who have a spiritual awakening feel the need for newer descriptions of the model of the universe? This is kind of what I was asking you in the beginning. Why newer models of understanding? Why not pick one from the ones available, Vedanta, Buddhism, etc.? Well, for two reasons. If you ask people, what is the model of the universe from Vedanta? Very few people will be able to tell you what it is. And very few people will be able to do it justice with, without using Sanskrit. And it's not going to be there distinctly in one place. If we want to say that Three Minds Framework is Vedanta, that's perfectly fine. We can say it's a translation. Ultimately, what is true, or let's say what is most useful, is most useful. They're going to be similar across whatever tradition. But we have to account for the society at this time, and we have to put it in those terms, and we have to make explicit certain aspects that may not have been made explicit before because that was not necessary. So that's the three minds framework, but it is not brand new. In a sense, it is Vedanta. It is Buddhism. To the extent that these are all useful and true, they are the same. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, nothing is new under the sun, but on the other hand, only a new seed will yield a new crop. 
So weed has been around for a long time, but you have to plant a fresh seed. Another one from Ravi. Can you please touch upon your understanding of the default mode network as a neurological correlate of identity? Yeah, I don't know much about the default mode network. I know it's used as, and I think, Ravi, if you are a neurologist, please contact me through the website, and then we can talk more about it and correlate. But as far as it is a kind of functioning or a particular function of an area of the brain, I can't speak to how that relates to identity. It is certainly true, or it can certainly be true that certain, of course, certain aspects of the brain correspond with certain functions, right? We know that from the homunculus, which is, right, it shows like which part of the body is controlled by which part of the brain. It's perhaps an oversimplification, but generally it's true. So similarly, we can say with the default mode network that there is an area of the brain that is associated with identity, but I can't speak more than that because I don't know enough about that. Okay, this may be the final question. This is from Shabnam Mirchandani in Pittsburgh. Intuition springs from our corporeal well as our mental faculties. In other words, like a well, intuition is springing up as our mental faculties. Is it a good spiritual guide? So in other words, is is intuition a good spiritual guide? As it's refined and as it is tested against the circumstances of our life, it is good. I wouldn't say intuition is good, follow it in all circumstances, because what is the quality of of that intuition? Where is it coming from? What are we calling intuition, right? So it has to be tested against our experience, and it has to yield consistently beneficial results. And the more and more that happens, the more and more we can trust what we are experiencing as intuition. And furthermore, it is not just intuition that comes from the deep well. It is everything that comes from the deep well. Even the body itself is a representation of the deepest kind of intuition. Oh, good point. I've seen many examples, probably in my own life at times too, of interpreting something as intuition, whereas it's really some kind of whim or some kind of conditioned response or could be anything. So you got to really make sure. Yeah, me too. All righty. Is there anything important that you feel we haven't covered? Yeah. I like to associate everything that we're talking about in terms of spirituality or awakening and integration with healing. With health revolution, what we say is healing is possible. And by healing, we mean becoming whole and becoming integrated. And that requires a whole human approach, seeing all of what we are, addressing and engaging all of what we are, and in doing that, engaging and addressing all of what the world is. And so healing is possible is true at the individual level for the mind, for the body, for what we call mental illness, which, again, I think is a misnomer. We should have better phrases, simply call it suffering or experience. Healing is possible for all of this. And that very same thing externally is what we call war and strife in the world to the point that you were making, Rick, earlier, that we can, by seeing more deeply, integrate all of this. We can do this. We can heal. It requires us doing the work. And I hope you'll join me in this process. How can people plug into you? I was listening to some recordings where you had an audience and people were posting questions and you were answering them. There's that, if that's still going on. And in those recordings, you also mentioned that people can uh, contact you for a private session. Is that still going on? Yeah. I've done a lot of different kinds of programs, Rick. That's a good (laughs) question as to what is online and what's not. Right now, the central hub is healthrevolution.org. So check out healthrevolution.org. 
we have the podcast started. We're going to start a live stream. And that'll be a place where we can engage live, likely weekly, to explore this content in a very human sense of health and healing and completeness. Through there, we can definitely do Q&A and other programs through there. So check out healthrevolution.org and subscribe, and we'll take it from there. Okay. And, uh, you know, stay in touch with me. So like two years from now, if you do some new thing or something, let me know, and I will put that on your Batcap page. And those listening to this two years from now or whenever, check Anoop's Batcap page to see what the latest is, because we'll keep it up to date. Great. Thank you. Okay, great. Yeah, and thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's um, very enriching for me to have these conversations with people, and, and you were a good one. Thank you. We need to see when you're going to be interviewed, Rick. I mean, you've oh, interviewed I, hundreds I have of been. people. I could send you a file of a whole list of interviews okay. that people have done of me. And we get requests once or twice a week, and Irene generally turns them down because she gets tired of hearing me saying the same things over and over again. <laughs> uh, because you have unique insight as someone who interviews what we call awakening people. So what does that actually mean? And uh, oh, it just reminds me like two or three topics popped up we didn't talk about, but we'll do it some other time. I think that's really important knowledge, not just people representing themselves, but what's the other side of it too. Yeah. Well, let's do another one a year or two from now, maybe. When we do, we can review this one and each make a list of things we want to cover that we didn't cover so that we don't just repeat ourselves. So thanks a lot, Anoop, and thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and we will see you for the next one. Go to batgap.com, explore the menus. There's things you can do there and that you'll find interesting. Lately, I've been having all the interviews transcribed and proofread. If you feel like volunteering to help proofread, let me know. There's an audio podcast of this. There's an email list you can sign up for to be notified. There's a Facebook group where with 14,000 plus members where people hash this stuff out endlessly. So whatever appeals to you, we'll keep them coming. Thanks. Thank you.